We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Hannah McCleary and our guest, founder of Deadly Science and New South Wales Young Australian of the Year, Corey Tutt. Today, in celebration of NADOC Week, we'll be focusing on Corey's organisation, Deadly Science, why it's important to bridge the gap in education for Indigenous children in rural communities and how we can all get involved with this amazing work. So, Corey, to start with, do you just want to give us a little rundown of your background of study, um, what you did at university and how you came to sort of be involved with Deadly Science? Firstly, before we start, I just want to acknowledge the traditional elders of the land, past and present. I'm recording on Gadigal country of the Aurora Nation. Just to run you through my background, I actually don't have a uni degree. I have a the captive animal certificate, which is um, a zookeeping certificate. Um you know, I, I wanted to be a zookeeper, right? So all throughout my childhood, I was that kid that was always picking up worms, spiders, the odd possum, snakes, lizards. And, you know, I was always fascinated by these animals and how they worked. And I was always fascinated by technology. I think as a kid, I was always a natural scientist where I was always trying to figure out how things work. And I think kids are. And by the time I went to high school, I, was, I had my mind set. I wanted to be a zookeeper. I wanted to be the guy that was holding the crocodile, holding the snake, and like, this is going to be my dream job. And I went to my careers advisor, and I was, I was actually quite good at maths and English and history. And I sort of said to my careers advisor, he's like, I want to be a zookeeper. And he's like, kind of looked at me and was like, you yeah, know, look, kids like you don't really go on to be zookeepers. And they don't really go on to university. You're an Indigenous guy. You've got a lot of energy, a lot of passion but you're better off sticking to a trade because I'm worried that if you don't do a trade, you may end up you know, incarcerated or even worse. And as horrible as that sounds, that was the thing that really drove me. And I got told that in year 10. So after the school certificate, I left school, as you do, um, and I went to a place called Rue Gully, which is in Boyart Brook in Western Australia, as a 16-year-old, and I started working on a wildlife sanctuary. Um, yeah, and I had a pretty rough background where I was, pretty independent most of my life as well so I knew how to cook and everything but all of a sudden I had this responsibility these lives that you know these really fragile animals that were so dependent on me to do my job properly after that I sort of got a bit homesick and I I went to Shoalhaven Zoo at Shoalhaven Zoo we had three different ecosystems we had the mountains and the rainforest then we had some desert areas which were really arid Um, and then we had had the Shoalhaven River going through our zoo on one particular morning you could see dolphins and then um, you could see brim or freshwater fish like bass and in summer you can't walk from one end of that zoo to the other without seeing a venomous snake (laughs) you know it was it was just a magical place Um, you got to know the animals so one of the water buffaloes down there is called Tinkerbell and I had a really good relationship with Tinkerbell to the point where I would feed Tinkerbell in the morning and she would sort of like make little squeaking noises and um, actually skip so that's why she got the name Tinkerbell because she kind of looked like a ballerina when she skipped and this is a you know two or three hundred kilo animal skipping towards you um, but she was a real sweetheart and um, you know I really enjoyed every moment I had down there but 
like when you get too comfortable in life, generally things tend to go wrong. And I had a best friend that I had been sort of working with and, you know, he was sort of like my confidant. You know, he was um, someone that understood what it was like to have a rough upbringing and love animals. And it's a trigger warning. He um, passed away um, due to suicide, which was really, um, it was a really dark time in my life. And um, I'd been doing tape at that point. So I'd already finished my captive animals. And I actually just lost the love of animals. That joy that I got from um, picking up the blue tongue lizard and telling people why it's got a blue tongue and it can flash its tongue at you and say, I'm venomous and get away from me. Or, you know, the black around the eyes, which reduces glare so they can avoid predators. You know, these cool facts that I loved suddenly meant nothing to me. It was to the point where I would come to work and I would be, you know, Tinkerbell would still make me smile um, and the animals would still make me smile, but I wouldn't feel that joy. And that was a really scary thing to me because um, I had a lot of variables in my life, in my childhood. Things always changed. We moved around a lot, but the only constant I really had was animals and science, you know, so um, understanding how things worked and why they worked a certain way was my comfort. So when I stopped enjoying that, I became really concerned with myself. I was only 18. And when you're 18, you don't really know what's going on. You think you know, but you don't really know. So I saw an ad in the paper for an alpaca handler. And you can listen to this on ABC RN, and it's called Walking Together. Um, I went to this fellow's house, and his name's James Dixon. And I feel really silly because I, I was a former zookeeper. So I was picking up tiger snakes, taipans, and, you know, when you think about packers, you don't think, oh, that's a dangerous animal. Like, you don't, you know, when, you, when you've worked in the space of dangerous animals, you don't think that's a dangerous animal. And the first, the first alpaca that I saw, it was um, finally named Pikachu, and it was in the Southern Highlands. And it head-butted me in the face and cracked my cheekbone. And, you know, if, when people go, oh, how do you get resilience? And I say, you know what, I think back to the moment when I started alpaca sharing. I was a depressed 18-year-old guy who had just lost a friend, a really close friend, to something really horrible. And I really struggled with enjoying moments. When I say, like, I feel like I'm resilient is because this alpaca headbutted me in the face, broke my cheekbone, like broke it. I kept working. So, Corey, I wonder if I could um, ask you a little bit more about that resilience. Because you say when you realised you were resilient was when when you were in a really tough spot mentally and emotionally um, and also then in this physical encounter that's you know it, it sounds almost comical this young boy having like a really tough time and then these animals who are giving him an even tougher time to add to that load but actually you know it, it sounds to me like you had a resilience far be before that point as well you know a lot of people and I'm sure that you know maybe people from your upbringing would have sat in that room with that guidance counselor and been told you know, your dreams are unattainable based on your upbringing and what usually happens. So, you know, what kind of went through your mind when those limits were put on you? you got to, we've got to understand that schooling is a lot different to what it is today. Um, in the sense of when I was eight years old, I witnessed a fatal accident. And it was, it was kind of all over the news in 2001 that, that um, it was when the school zones got put in. And, you know, that was a really tough thing for a kid to see. You know, I, I wasn't always the best student. Sometimes I thought I was a bit too smart. As they, and I think a lot of young fellas and young people think that a lot of the time. Like, when I think back to that moment and I think back to that, you know, you won't achieve anything unless you do a trade. 
now when I see tradies like sort of wandering around with a wallet full of cash, I kind of think, oh, well, that was actually good advice. But when you, when you, the moment you decide that, you know, what you're going to create your own narrative and that you're not going to take that advice and that you can actually be inspired by those words, there was three things that could have happened. I could have listened and I could have gone and done a trade and I probably would have been reasonable at it and made an honest living, but I would have been unhappy because it wouldn't have been what I wanted to do. Or I could have just completely regressed and been like worse. But I chose to actually just pursue what I wanted to do. I probably should have went on to year 12. I should have went on to university, but the pathway wasn't there for me. And the sense of like, I I probably needed to, to leave school when I did. Um, and I kind of, and being a 28 year old guy, I look back to what I knew as an 18 year old and a 16 year old. I think, what the hell was I doing? But then circumstances change. So, you know, a lot of the rough stuff that I had in my childhood actually molded me as a person to, you know, understand the world in a, a different way. You know, and I see like, it's, it's really funny. Cause like when I go to my lab meetings now and I work as a research assistant in the children's center, I see it now because I've seen the world in a different way. I've seen the world from the perspective of an Aboriginal kid living in a community to moving around a lot. I have a different perspective on things and, a, and it's, it's different um, to someone that's, you know, gone to private school, got a really good education, loving parents, loving, you know, all these amazing things that have sort of been, you know, like they've had, you know, they've had stability and I've only really had animals with my stability. So that means that you've had to create your own stability. You know what I mean? So you have a different perspective on things. And I think that when, when we talk about resilience, we talk about um, being resilient. It's about, you know, not dropping your milk when, when things are tough because things get really tough and they do. They, in life, it, it is really hard to be a young person. Um, and in some ways, with all the technology, it's actually even harder now to be a young person more than ever because you have these social media platforms where you are being watched constantly. You know, in, in science, we all are resilient people. And we all, you know, like I always have this saying and it's really, it's really corny and cliche, but, you know, science equals hope. I think you're absolutely right, but I also, I've never really thought of it as hope, but I've always thought of science as like a creative outlet almost. So you're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking with Corey Tut. Stay tuned, and in just a moment, we'll be talking about the story behind deadly science and what it aims to achieve. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today in celebration of NAIDOC Week, we're joined by Corey Tutt, founder of Deadly Science and New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. Uh, so Corey, do you want to just give our listeners a rundown of what the organisation Deadly Science does um, and sort of why you think it's important for Australia to actually fill in the missing link of science education for Indigenous children in rural communities? So yeah, I'll um I'll run through the name Deadly Science first because your listeners are probably like Deadly. This isn't some um you know we're not thinking like deadly diseases or you know science that will kill you. Um, deadly for Aboriginal people is a cool slang word for awesome or cool, and that, that actually comes from the Irish. So 
from I believe it comes from the Irish, but yeah, I was just um, thinking that we like I'm Irish and we say deadly or savage all the time. I was like, oh, that's deadly. That's so cool. <laughs> so, so when um, sort of the the white um, colonization happened, the invasion, as they say, um, the Irish were actually treated really horribly by the English. Um, so there was a lot of Aboriginal people that became friends with Irish people and. A lot of families um, are a lot of Aboriginal families actually carry Irish last names, and the word deadly was Irish slang. So that's where the name deadly science comes from. And you know, I started this program because Aboriginal people are the first scientists, they're the original scientists, right? We were the first, you know, the first people that really looked at the stars and did astronomy. We did this because we used the, the dark emus constellation in the sky to know when to hunt emu eggs. Right? And that is a form of science. We made fishing hooks out of whalebone. We made spears. We did all these really cool things. And, um, you know, we, we were taught that Aboriginal people were hunter-gatherers and that, you know, the white people came and saved us, but we actually really managed and manipulated the land really well. And it's, it's been sort of brought up a lot lately with Dark Emu and obviously the, the tragic fires that happened um, you know, our land management techniques are starting to come back. But from my from my perspective, I think we need to change the conversation. So if we if we change the conversation to we actually all come from the country that invented bread, invented the world's first fish trap, first country on earth that used astronomy to hunt and, you know, understood the stars and the constellations, then we'd be a lot closer. Uh, we'd be a lot closer than what we are now. We still have a long way to go, but if we actually understood that Aboriginal people were the first scientists of this country and potentially the world, then we would have a better understanding of our the world around us and also our people. So let's get into how I started the deadly science phenomenon. You know, I, I'd actually been working as an animal technician at the University of Sydney and we'd worked out that I wanted to go work with AIM mentoring um, and I'd been a mentee as a kid because I'm a Camillary man and I went through my schooling um, as a First Nations person and I was put through the AIM mentoring program and it was really good for me. I got to meet people that you know were like me and respected me and really gave me a lot of belief and hope. Uh, and I'm still friends with my mentor today so I wanted to give back. Um, so I started doing these science talks up in Redfern, up in um, up in the Castle Building, University of Sydney, and also in Redfern and Waterloo. And I was talking to these young people, and I was just taken away by how much they loved science. They were like me, but the the whole conversation of science was something that was made unavailable to them. Even the AIM failure time days didn't have any form of science. They had um, the failure time days were their career days. They had um, you know the army, they had the police. They had art, but they had no science whatsoever. So I would come to these days with my arms with my iPhone, um, and I would give these talks, and I'd talk about glow in the dark mice. I'd talk about CRISPR. I would talk about the stars. I'd talk about dark emu. I'd talk about all these really cool things. But it actually just became a conversation between me and these schools and these kids about science and about what it's like to think of science in a different way. And when we teach science, we often think of test tubes and lab coats and the brightest of the bright. 
but really science is for everyone in a way because um, whether you're a baker trying to work out recipes to make the best bread, that is a form of science. Whether you, uh, you know, you're working in a, in the sports science factor and you want to work with an AFL and NRL club, you need a science degree to do that, sports science degree. You know, and we needed to, I needed to decolonize the idea of science. That was probably, you know, some of the best moments in my life were talking to those kids and sharing stories, you know, sharing stories of my childhood and what I experienced and what they experienced. And, you know, unfortunately those sort of, those sort of days ended and I had to do something else. Um, I had to do more. I knew I could do more. So I do what most crazy people do. And I picked up my phone and I started calling remote schools. And it was a real eye opener because not only did these kids that I was talking to in Sydney, um, who you would think would have access to all the resources that they need, weren't really getting those resources or that belief factor that, you know what, you can't be what you can't see. And that's a really cliche thing that's said to Aboriginal people all the time. And I say it all the time. I use it as well. But it's like these kids weren't given the chance to actually see what they could be because they weren't they weren't seeing anyone like them doing it. I ended up, um, yeah, ended up calling these remote schools up and then like, I just found out how under-resourced they were. There were schools in Australia that had 15 books in their library. There were schools that had, you know, 40 books in their library. And I think, and like, you know, but it's, but it's okay there's one book per student. And it's like, that's not the point. You know, the point is, is that we need resources scientific resources one that we can do the two-way learning so we can do the original scientists so we can learn about the the land and um, how our people manage it but also why can't kids in remote communities look through telescopes and look at the stars and combine the two because it's important that these kids can actually believe that they can do it and um, you know one of the best things that ever happened to me as well was um, there was a kid from Robinson River named Charlie and I've never met Charlie at all. Um, I've met a few of the kids that I work with, but I've never met Charlie. Um, and Charlie, you know, has autism, right? And he couldn't read, couldn't write. And we said to him, hey, come to school and work really hard. So we gave him a Deadly Junior Scientist Award, which um, anyone that follows Deadly Science will see these little tickets. And it's actually really hard to get a Deadly Junior Scientist Award. Like, it's, it's really hard. We don't actually give them out every week. You have to be going to school. You have to be a really good person. You have to be engaged in science. You have to be engaged in some sort of way. Um, and this kid, you know, all we said to him is just go try. Just try hard. You know, just whatever you do in life, it will sort itself out if you just try your best. And he started coming to school, so we gave him a dinosaur book. Um, and that dinosaur book was that spark that got him reading. You know, and that's whatever happens to Charlie from now on in. That is a skill that he's going to have for the rest of his life. You know, the, the greatest thing we've done, and you announced me as the young Australian of the year for New South Wales, um, you know, and it's, that was a really special moment for me achieving that and achieving the Indigenous CSRO STEM champion, these awards are great, but my greatest achievement is I've changed the perception of the person at home and how they see Aboriginal kids. Um, I can guarantee that a lot of people, especially in Australia, would not have seen Aboriginal kids 
enjoying science in the way that Deadly Science has portrayed it. Um, and it's not betraying it in the sense that we're not lying to you. These kids actually do enjoy science and they enjoy understanding and learning the world around you. And it doesn't matter. And it goes to show, no matter what your skin colour is or where you come from, kids just enjoy learning and they just have the resources um, to do it. And I don't want to be angry and I don't want to have to be angry and I don't want to have to be screaming from rooftops to get these kids the resources that they deserve. I'd rather do it in a way that educates people. I want people to delete their misconceptions of Aboriginal kids and I want Aboriginal kids everywhere to know that we come from the line of the original scientists and that science is for us. And, you know, art and sport are really great things and they're a form of science in their own way, but not everyone's going to be an AFL player, not everyone's going to be an artist, but you can certainly be a scientist in some way. I think there's so many inspiring points that you make when you talk about deadly science and it's so easy to just listen to what you're talking about. But I think one of the most powerful things is that you're challenging stereotypes, both from the outside community of what we perceive rural Indigenous students to be passionate about, but also of those students themselves and maybe of their teachers and of what their communities perceives as a possibility for those students. And I really love that story of, of Charlie. And, you know, I'm a firm believer too that it is just that spark and I think everybody has that spark in them. It's just how do we fan it so much that they get whatever they're passionate about. Um, but I also would encourage everybody to follow Deadly Science because, you know, lots of people talk about wholesome puppies or just wholesome content on the internet. But hands down, my favourite content <laughs> is Deadly Science. And like sometimes literally there was a boy this week who wasn't doing very well in science. Yep. I literally got teary reading about mm. it and he'd started to turn things around and I just wanted to be like, I am so rooting for you because <laughs> it's th that's what it takes. It's just, it's building a community and it's getting some passion and infrastructure around these children that is really powerful. And I think, how could anybody not be supportive? And you see these big smiling faces when they get these certificates and it's just really powerful, the reach of what you've been doing. I think the, the most important thing to me, and my, my, I get like, you know, I'm like everyone and I get frustrated all the time. And my partner's, um, you know, she like, she's a really good sort of stick to whack me back into, back into the way I should be. Um, you know, it, it, it would be so easy for me to get angry and just be full of outrage and, you know, say what, say the things that people want me to say. Like, they want me to say that, you know, they want me to be like, oh, how, how dare this happen? Um, and they want me to be an outrager, you know, that someone that just explodes at the slightest inconvenience. But I want to paint Aboriginal people in a different light. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be someone that, um, you know, explodes with anger. That And I feel those things. I definitely do. But I would much rather educate you than hate you. That's how I feel. I don't actually hate anyone. I kind of like, you know, I, how I feel is that by putting those photos up, I change what you've learned at school. I change what you've learned throughout your life because you're seeing these kids enjoying something that is traditionally been a bit taboo. And, you know, and as much as people love deadly science, that, that is scary for some people. Like that is so scary in the sense of like, you're used to having something your whole life being a certain way 
and then someone's come along and said, oh, actually, no, that's a load of garbage. Here is the actual truth. And here is the truth in it. And it's really, the gap is not necessarily in knowledge because, um, and we talk about literacy and numeracy, but these kids speak four or five different languages and English is probably their fourth or fifth. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have books and don't have things that spark the mind, then you cannot expect these kids to be at a level playing field than those in the city. So we've got to treat it differently. And when we talk about closing the gap and all these things, you know, I could get angry at it and I could get 200 likes on a tweet for being angry. But what I can change is I can change by sending a box of books to that school and encouraging kids to read them and believe in themselves. Uh, me putting a tweet out, a provocative tweet out to uh, draw in all the racists that I'm not going to change their minds anyway. Um, like there's some people I'm not going to change their minds. I agree yeah. with you, Rory, and I like really support this attitude of um, you controlling the controllables that are within your narrative. So it's not how other people are going to respond to things. It's essentially just feeding the type of information that you would like to see and that you think should be celebrated, which I really admire and respect. So I suppose, do you have any messages around what you would like to see um, you know, in support for deadly science or in support more broadly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or, or kids pursuing STEM? Yeah, well, I think the time has come to walk together, not walk behind. And, you know, with um, First Nations allies and uh, white people that are trying to help in this space, uh, my advice is don't talk to us, don't talk over us, listen to us, um, listen to what the people are saying. And if you want to support Deadly Science, buy a shirt. <laughs> um, follow us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, follow the journey. You know, if you if you love what we do, then follow us. But if you don't, then don't. Um, that's fine. You know, you have that choice. But um, in terms of closing the gap and, you know, walking as one, we need to adopt First Nations perspectives. And, and I think if we change the conversation that way, then we'll start to walk together instead of walking behind each other. I think that's a really powerful sentiment. Anything to add there, Hannah? No, I completely agree. And yeah, I just urge everyone to follow Deadly Science, support where you can. It's a really, um, yeah, really beautiful organisation doing some great work. <laughs> Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. And this content has been to celebrate NADOC Week. So thank you to our Indigenous Voice Manager, Hannah McCleary, for organising this, our expert guest, Corey Tutt. And as I said, and as Hannah said, you know, please try and get around Deadly Science, support it as much as you can. So sharing that content where you can buy a shirt or um, promote the work that's being done. If you want to get in touch with us, you can across all social media streams and like and subscribe to the podcast if you want to get more science-related content coming to you from Tassie, but across the nation. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.